Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Katie Holloway-Bridge. Katie is a four-time Paralympic sit volleyball player for Team USA and she has won medals at every single Paralympic game she's been to. So they have two silver and two gold medals. She is also just about to become a mum for the first time. So I'm really excited to talk to her about that journey as well. So welcome to the podcast, Katie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad we managed to sneak this one in just before the birth of your baby, before all all hell breaks loose. (laughs) Exactly. Days away, for sure. (laughs) Katie, can you tell us about your background, including your impairment and how you got into sit volley? Sure. So I was born with fibular hemimelia, which is I was born without a fibula bone in my right leg. My parents made the decision to amputate at two years old. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a small community where I was able to play able-bodied sports. So softball, basketball, soccer, I tried it all. Mm -hmm. and really landed on volleyball and basketball and played at the able-bodied in the able-bodied worlds for most of my career. And then wasn't until I was 20 where I was competing at Cal State Northridge in basketball that the Paralympic volleyball team came and trained at Northridge one one year in 2006 Mm -hmm. in February. And I was introduced to the team and the coach by my my current athletic trainer at the time. And they invited me out to a training camp and the volleyball coaches and the basketball coaches kind of had an agreement that my basketball program would actually be priority. And the seasons worked really well together where I was able to compete in both volleyball and basketball for my remainder of my two years at, mm. uh, in college. And it, it seems so seamless, but at the time it was very much a, a big transition for me to compete both on the able-bodied level and in the mm. Paralympic world. Yeah. And so yeah. I made a huge transition in my life to start competing in adaptive sports. And obviously it changed my life in so many ways and haven't looked back. Mm. And so when you were competing in basketball and able-bodied volleyball, you did that with a prosthetic limb. Correct. Yes. Sorry. I was <laughs> fit with a prosthetic when I was two and had a series of surgeries growing up related to my disability from different things related to my disability and then wore one prosthetic pretty much for everything up until I turned 20. And then once I became part of the Paralympic team, I I went to a prosthetist that was able to provide me with a number of different solutions for a running leg and things like that. I went to Scott Sablich and I was able to open up my world with prosthetics, but how, um, wow. Yes, and- am I able so how was that? Like, how many prosthetics have you ended up with? Well, growing up from probably age two to 18, maybe even 20, I would, well, I would say probably from age two to 16, I would receive one prosthetic per year, it seemed like, to, as I was growing rapidly. I'm also 6'3", so mm-hmm. I needed a new prosthetic, and I also took was very hard on them, so competed though with just a a standard I think it was you know I can't remember at the time like a flex foot or something like that Mm -hmm. and you know made for somebody that was like 500 pounds you know Um, (laughs) and once I got to college I did get a new one made that was better equipped for 
you know, more advanced <laughs> competition. Mm-hmm. However, it was still just made for a regular everyday foot, yeah. unfortunately. So had, you know, I've been competing today, I would have had a running blade for all of our conditioning sessions. And mm. I would have had much easier time probably on the conditioning side of the house. But I was actually did all of my conditioning on the same leg that I competed on as well. And did you, did you have... Yeah, I was going to say, did you have some injuries related to that or did you tend to get some pressure wounds on the, at where the stump meets the prosthetic or, you know, what was the, I guess, how did changing that prosthetic for the different conditioning sessions help you? Very big. So I, having different prosthetics for different things like just running or conditioning, I was able to go on runs and actually start to get into better shape, and which allowed me to be in better shape for my sports in particular. When I was competing in college, I actually will say that had I known more about nutrition in college, I believe my experience would have been a large difference Mm -hmm. um, in how my prosthetic fit because I didn't know about the the weight changes that were happening on a daily basis and when uh. I was competing for basketball and the amount of workouts. So I had a, I have a callus at the end of my stump where mm-hmm. I would pound on it so much that there would be bleeding coming through mm. the stump and my weight would fluctuate on a daily basis. So I would have four four hours in theory of workout a day, whether that would be practices or running or weights. And so my weight would fluctuate drastically in a day. And then I would go and refuel with Chipotle and pizza and heavy (laughs) salts. And then I'd wake up and my leg would be would fit more snug and be swollen. And so the weight, the drastic weight changes and my nutrition would have been a huge facet to know in college and would have changed also, if I would have had different prosthetics, would have changed mm. my experience, I think, largely. And most of that weight fluctuation that you're talking about is from fluid, from, you know, whether you're well hydrated, whether you're dehydrated, is that that's what's contributing the biggest change? From my understanding, yes, now, mm-hmm. of course, with the education that I have now, it, I sweat a lot. And so mm-hmm. I would go into workouts, lose a ton of fluid, never would I have electrolytes, I'd just have water. Mm-hmm. And then again, would do replacement through meals of, you know, very bad nutrition. And in, in theory, I remember our bus stopping at the end of, you know, a road trip, and they'd stop at the corner of McDonald's, Carl's Jr., in and out and Taco Bell. <laughs> All all the great recovery foods. (laughs) Exactly. But that was common. That was so Mm. common. And at the time, and so I competed from 2004 to 2008 in college. And Mm -hmm. so if that gives you any frame of reference of how sports Mm. nutrition has come a long way and how we have dietitians now embedded at schools is fantastic. But at the time that was in theory, how we, how we treated our recovery. And so combined with my sweat and fluid loss with heavy salt diet, that would be the cause, in my opinion, the fluctuation of my weight, which would, which would go all to my stump in theory. Mm. Yep. And, and I think that's a really interesting thing to bring up because a lot of people don't realize that, you know, with 
that change in fluid volume and hydration level can influence just the size and the, the snugness of fit of your prosthetic. And so that's important to think about on a day-to-day basis, but it's also really important to think about when you're travelling and you have periods of time where you're immobilised, like on a, a long-haul flight, correct? Yes, and I would say my prosthetist at the time, I will give them credit, they did try to encourage me to change my socks. So, you know, putting on more socks if I was down in weight and had less fluid. And then when I was up in weight, you know, to take more socks off for my prosthetic. Mm-hmm. But I was very stubborn <laughs> and didn't know <laughs> I didn't know what was happening. And so I would say a healthy dose of education and support would have been desired at the time, but I also did, lacked a lot of trust. And so I didn't make those changes and therefore suffered even more. So there was some mm. somebody trying to help encourage me to make those changes and I resisted. So there was a little bit of that. I also didn't have a sports dietitian and so I think that would have helped a lot. Yeah. I can't imagine you being a stubborn person, Katie. <laughs> no, not at all. But yes, to, to your point about travel on flights and bus rides where we're just sitting in seats that are too short and too small and mm. potentially in the air, tra- air travel, especially my, my leg definitely is affected by that as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a six foot three frame is difficult to fit into most seats on an aircraft. Yes. Have you have you also found that just being out, having some flexibility and being able to sort of have, say, an exit row seat where there's a little bit more space helps a lot? Yeah, and I would say now, you know, of course, being so far educated past what I used to be on my nutrition and what affects my fit of my prosthetic. I, I choose, I actually choose a aisle and changed that because mm-hmm. from a window to an aisle, probably, I don't know, when I first got to being educated by my sports dietitian, Jackie, because she, I would say, oh, I want to sit on the window and not get up ever. Mm-hmm. And so now I have officially changed to an aisle seat so that I can get up and move around and make sure I hydrate um, before flight so that my, my leg, I used to just say it just falls asleep basically in my prosthetic. Mm. And now that I know what I know, I sit on the aisle, I get up often, I hydrate before flights. I make sure to change my socks out so that I'm in a lighter sock in my prosthetic so that it fits better during Mm. the flight. Lots and lots of things that a lot of people never have to think about, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it's very, I mean, it's very impactful when you're traveling for competition as well to make sure you get there. And my, you know, left side, my sound side doesn't have a kinkle when we show up to China Mm. for a competition Mm -hmm. after eating a high salt food in the airplane. Yeah. So can you tell us also a bit more about how you transitioned from being an able-bodied volleyball player to sip volley like what's the different what are the biggest differences that you found between those two versions of volleyball so I actually um so it, just to be clear I played basketball in college um mm-hmm. and then I played standing volleyball in high school up until my sophomore year and then quit to pursue uh-huh. basketball in college and then made the transition to play sitting volleyball during the time I was playing still competing in college basketball 
Not. But the big, the biggest differences I would say was more mentally than physically. I mm -hmm. adapted pretty well to playing sitting volleyball. It was obviously a challenge, but from standing to sitting in particular, you have to relearn how to move. You're not, mm -hmm. you're not moving with your feet from side to side. You're moving with your hands and legs and arms on the ground. You're scooting mm -hmm. and playing the ball with your hands. And so it's a totally different mechanical body mechanical movement to learn how to play sitting volleyball from standing volleyball. And really it's unnatural to somebody that's been playing an able-bodied sport their whole life. And I feel like it's similar probably to playing standing basketball to wheelchair basketball, where you have to learn the chair skills mm -hmm. in order to move up and down the court with efficiency. The same happens for sitting volleyball. You need to move as efficiently as possible. And it, learning that takes at least a year to master, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay. But otherwise, the rules are fairly similar, are they not? Yes. From standing to sitting, the court is smaller, the net is lower. You're playing everything with one cheek on the ground at all times. You can block mm -hmm. the serve, but all the rules for standing to sitting are the same. Okay, cool. And so what sort of training were you putting into place? Like get, run through, say, in the lead up to Tokyo, for example, what would your training have looked like? you know, on an average basis. So I'm considered a, a non-resident for our program, which means that I live full-time away from our training site. Mm -hmm. During the time leading up to Tokyo, I was fortunate enough to not have a full-time job, which whether that's fortunate or not, I'm not sure, but it allowed me to train more at in our training site in Oklahoma. So my training leading up month to month looked like this about three weeks out of the month, I would be at home where I would spend three days a week, actually five days a week at my gym here called the Rikus Center, which is a community center that provides me gym space and a strength coach. So two days a week, I would do strength training. Three days a week, I would have practices where I would recruit local standing volleyball players to play with me. And then once a, once a month for about a week, I would travel to Oklahoma to train full-time with the team for that entirety of the week alongside mm -hmm. of a training camp. And so we would have training camps once a month that are Friday, Saturday, Sunday that are double days, pretty much a 16-hour day, if you can imagine, just mm. all things <laughs> included mm. in that as well of meetings and other things. And then I would train throughout the week on the regular resident program when flying to Oklahoma. So that was, that was in theory, my training leading up to Tokyo. Mm. And how did you fit your nutrition around that? What were some of the key things that you focused on and what would an average day kind of have looked like? I think consistency was key in terms of my nutrition. So when I'm at home, it's really easy and I've, I meal prep on a Sunday my mm -hmm. salads, I still do that to this day. So I meal prep my vegetables because that's always the hardest for me to get in during a really busy work day or busy day of training. So when I'm at home, I always meal prep five salads for the week and then typically would have a sandwich and a salad. And then mm -hmm. I would meal prep potentially some snacks as well. So a morning and afternoon snack, whether that's nuts or hard boiled eggs or an apple with peanut butter as well. And then when I'm in Oklahoma, it looks drastically different. It would be 
I would be out of my comfort zone and not have, I'd have a kitchen. So I would, I would literally fly in, stop at Sprouts and grab my essentials. So I actually started this, this last year because I was spending more time in Oklahoma, but I would stop at Sprouts. I would grab my normal everyday breakfast that I would have. So it was two eggs, avocado, whole wheat toast, and some fruit. And so mm-hmm. I grabbed my staples for breakfast in the morning and would eat that before our training sessions. I would make sure that I'd have some kind of after practice snack because I'd go right into doing my remote work. And then mm-hmm. I had visits to my prosthetic appointments as well. So I would always grab like a turkey sandwich or something to make sure I'm eating directly after my two to three hour training block in the morning. But stopping at Sprouts was key to having some staples for the, my, especially my morning meal to start it off right. And then mm-hmm. something for my middle of the day when I was on the run between a bunch of different things while I was in Oklahoma. And then evening ranged from just trying to, I, a lot of eating out, but like during the week until our training camp would start where we would get meals made for us. So mm-hmm. the eating out would try to include some kind of healthy option as well, but a pretty substantial meal out. Mm-hmm. And obviously, well, I would hazard a guess an improvement from tacos or yeah, <laughs> burgers or <laughs> the what you used yes. to have as a collegiate athlete. Yes. And it also shouldn't surprise you that when in Oklahoma, the healthier options are a little bit harder to find, I would mm. say, on the go as well. And so typically they're a little bit more expensive, but, you know, a Mediterranean option where I would be getting a wrap and a salad or some veggies, I typically would end up spending more just to get some more healthier options um, yeah. for my dinners. Isn't that frustrating because you'd like to think that it's the other way around that it's actually cheaper to get the healthier options and easier to find them and so what were some of the biggest nutrition challenges you have faced as a as an athlete was it apart from obviously hydration and working out your hydration needs and and your fluid intake has been a big one because that's something that we've talked about already any other big nutrition challenges that you faced i think the biggest thing is is just when you're not in your normal schedule is making sure you have what you need to make the right choices mm-hmm. and for me that is all in your planning so for me i make terrible choices when i'm starving so mm. i and i and that's just consistently i if i'm hungry i will make a bad choice and i'm on the go when I'm traveling. And for for me being a non-resident, I'm traveling pretty often mm. to train and train at a high level. And so it was planning out how my travel day would go. So I would make sure to buy a salad at Trader Joe's before and take it on the plane with me and have a PB&J ready to go so that I wouldn't go past the point of hunger Mm-hmm. and be starving so that I could make sure that I was eating something to hold me over until I could make a healthy choice option for a meal. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think that's been the biggest challenge is looking ahead at what's going on in my schedule during the week and planning for that and also stocking my fridge at home to make sure I was making those healthy choices. And I would say apart from that, 
it's then making sure I'm having those healthy snacks at the right times. So mm. making sure I have a snack before I go to, so because I work full time as well as can train as an athlete, I work, you know, a typical eight to five o'clock day. And then mm-hmm. by the time I leave for my workout, I'm going to my workout from five to six. I really need to have an afternoon snack mm. so that yeah. when I get done with my workout, I'm not going home starving. I'm yeah. going home. My husband makes me a meal and then I eat my meal. And so, yeah. and it's a healthy option. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people go, oh, I'm just so busy. I haven't got time. But the time that you can invest in in doing a lot of that organizing and the meal prep actually saves you a lot of time and and helps support all the things that you're doing. It's it's really about understanding what your body needs. Do you do you feel like that transition was hard to do or just took a lot of consistency in the first place and then became easier? It becomes easier the more you make it a habit. And mm-hmm. so, the, and then the more that you know, you start to pay attention to your habits, then it gets easier. But yes, it takes years to to perfect that craft, honestly. And it's taken years for me to have work with Jackie and, and her level of experience to understand like, okay, these are the times where we're really ramping up. You need to be more consistent and helping hold me accountable and Mm -hmm. holding myself accountable. And then also when those times really falter, making sure I have like 17 snacks in my bag (laughs) ready to go, you know, those are, and and snacks that I'll eat too, right? Like knowing like, okay, I'm going to go to Costco and I buy a big box of you know, some kind of snack and then I don't like it. Right. Mm. So making sure that it's a, it's super trial and error, but it's also about consistency and learning what, you know, you'll go to versus what you won't. So recently I've been buying the macro bars, go macro bars. I think they are. Mm-hmm. And those I, I will definitely hold me over in a pinch. So they're expensive, but I, I feel like they're important because I know that they will save me a bad choice Mm. in the long run. Yeah. And I I imagine that feeding a six foot three frame is, you know, who's really active is not the easiest thing to do. Do you, you know, in terms of just the amount of food that you have to get in for that volume of training and the size of your body? Yeah. And I would say probably another challenge being a female too is, you know, I like to, I, and this I think came from basketball. I love mm-hmm. to overeat. I love to feel full. And so part of the challenge too is, like I said, really setting myself up for making better choices to mm-hmm. maintain that where I'm not eating when I'm hungry. And so like if I'm in a lower training cycle, like I have been this year and not training as much, I need to be really conscious of eating more snacks during the day so that I'm not overeating at night mm, or yeah. not and skipping a meal and not eating as often and then overeating in one run. Yep. And I think a lot of people make the, I guess, when they're trying to manage their body composition, for example, they often pull out food earlier in the day and the, the consequence of that is often that at the end of the day when they're tired and when anyone's tired, they can't make the best decisions. <laughs> and so they do tend to overeat. So I, I, I really like that concept of making sure that you have enough to eat regularly through the day so that it takes the onus off that evening meal and you can actually calm it down 
a lot and be able to make decisions that are based on your appetite at that point in time rather than your body just driving you to eat. And that was probably one of my first really big lessons in working with Jackie was Mm -hmm. I would come home, I would eat a couple helpings of dinner, even though it was healthy, right? And then I would sit down with a dessert and a snack and eat, Mm -hmm. you know, out of the bag of, you know, bark thins or whatever it may be, not realizing that I was trying to make up for the calories that I wasn't eating during the day. And so Mm. when I started to eat more during the day, I ate less at night and I felt less hungry. And that seemed so foreign to me because I felt like I was so dialed in with my breakfast, my snacks and my lunch that I didn't realize I wasn't eating enough throughout the day. And actually Mm -hmm. by increasing my calories throughout the day, it allowed me to not be turning towards more helpings of dinner and a dessert. Mm, awesome. And you mentioned just just before that this year has been a little bit different, that you've been <laughs> you know, e- eating a little bit differently and, and training a little bit differently. You're obviously very pregnant. <laughs> What's, what, how, how's that been, like being an athlete and, and still wanting to, to do some training? How have you managed that with the pregnancy? I would say it is probably the ultimate test of my work with my sports psychologist. And (laughs) I really, I really would say that I've worked really hard on acceptance that works for me when it comes to working with my mental side of the house and trying to accept what is. And, you know, for me, that is what all of pregnancy has been about is the first Mm -hmm. trimester recognizing it is not the same. Your body is hijacked from you. And (laughs) quite literally felt like I was not able to physically do and exert things. I was sick. I was nauseous. Mm. I would, I was not to a degree that many people have. So I can't say that it was, you know, it was the worst thing in the world, but I definitely felt like my body was hijacked from being able to exert itself to the level that I've normally do. Mm-hmm. So it was setting my expectations lower and accepting that and also adjusting. I mean, everything goes out the window when it comes to eating because you're just not hungry. And mm. but you need to eat more in order to be less nauseous. <laughs> so <laughs> um it's a it's a vicious cycle in the first trimester. And then you get to a certain week where people say, oh, you're out of the first trimester and you get to the second and all of a sudden you think that this transition is supposed to magically happen. It does not. Um, <laughs> it keeps going. The gift keeps on going for another couple weeks. And then one day you have a workout and you're like, I feel like I'm my, in my body again. Mm-hmm. And so I then I, of course, go back to my regular training or like a 45-minute Peloton at full capacity and I get a migraine because I wasn't mm-hmm. hydrated enough because the baby takes – a lot of my hydration and I already have issues with hydration. So yeah, so it's a fun, it's a fun dance of again, <laughs> acceptance. And so now where I'm at again, in my first pregnancy here is full acceptance where I have turned towards just doing less and trying to accept just that is where I'm at physically. And that's okay. Yeah. Because it's a temporary shift for a different purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, you sound like someone who plans really well, and at least you know has thought through post the birth 
of your daughter. What's the plan in terms of have you got a bit of an idea of the time frame that it might be before you start to rebuild training and, and anything like that? Or is it just let's just see how it all goes and we'll play it by ear? Yeah, I, I have a plan. I know that also that will come with a bit of acceptance of uh, as it transpires, of course. Mm-hmm. My plan right now is to get through the holidays. It's um, December timeframe for those that are potentially listening back to this, but mm-hmm. it's December timeframe. So we're upon Christmas break and knowing that I will be having a newborn for those weeks. I'm giving myself full grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then as the start of the new year, I anticipate kind of getting back to walking and doing more walks. And then the following month, starting to introduce the Peloton, I have a Peloton at home and maybe some short workouts related to those that are low impact. Mm -hmm. And then we'll start to reintroduce volleyball, probably not till March or April Mm -hmm. and strength workouts starting maybe at February, March. I did forget to mention one of the things that I have been incredibly lucky to have at the Rikus Center is I have a combination of a strength coach and then I have a, a PT that I work with mm. where I do pelvic floor exercises weekly, yep. which are incredibly valuable for pre-pregnancy and post. And so mm. that resource in and of itself is the most amazing thing I could ask for because I think that's going to be incredibly valuable work that I've done in my pregnancy that will help in post-pregnancy as well as post-pregnancy doing that work. So yeah, um, being a sport where I'm playing sitting volleyball, I'm hopeful (laughs) that that really helps. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was actually, it was just, that was going to be my next question was what support have you got through PT? So that's, you've already answered it. That's fantastic. (laughs) I I will say that is the only support I do have. I don't have recovery resources here locally. Mm -hmm. That is one area where I think it's important to mention with Paralympic sport is as a non-resident athlete at a non-training center, you have to build your own network of support Mm -hmm. and your own training. So I've actually been here in the Bay Area for nine years and Mm -hmm. I have built every single resource, thankfully getting tons from the Rikus Center, but I have not received support in the athletic training space or in the recovery space. And so that is one area that I, I just am deficient in. And it's very challenging because it's all, you know, per session, essentially, Mm. and it's very expensive around here to do. But I'm hopeful that a combination of my own, I've I've got every tool you can imagine in my house, thanks Mm. to many years of competition and competing, I know how to treat myself, but there's only so much I can do without having a full-time, you know, training center to Mm. have actual recovery resources as well. And the reality is a lot of athletes, whether they're para-athletes or not, don't have access to those resources, especially as they're developing athletes. And and I think it's, I, I think that's a really nice message to even though that's not provided for you, doesn't stop you from building some degree of those resources and and making sure that you've got a framework that really supports you well in the areas that you need the most support at home. Totally. And it's all about being resourceful, right? I have Mm -hmm. organizations that have helped me for the years that I've been here, like Challenge Athletes Foundation with grants, Women's Sports Foundation with grants, NorCal Olympians and Paralympians with grants. I think there are so many 
areas to look. I have a, I do have a sports medicine clinic that does massage, but I get a discount for it because Mm -hmm. they do, they work with elite athletes. So it's incredibly important to be resourceful and do your research as well, wherever you're at, because they are organizations that will help you for sure. Mm. Yeah, I guess that goes that that's kind of one of your main my next question was going to be what are your recommendations for potential athletes who may be looking at sit volley or playing volleyball and maybe have some degree of a physical impairment that may make them eligible what are some of your recommendations so obviously building your own network of, of support people whether it's a, you know, a strength and conditioning coach or an athletic trainer, depending on where, where your specific needs are. Do you have any other recommendations? Specific to sitting volleyball, I'd say wherever you are in the country, there are always volleyball clubs around the area. Mm-hmm. And so it's incredibly important to get in touch with local volleyball clubs because you'd be surprised at how many coaches and people are in our volleyball community that want to support you. When I moved here, I got blessed with a couple who I met that run a volleyball club that were willing to introduce me to their teams. It was a boys volleyball club and I would come in and train with them and they were like, whatever you need, let us know. And so occasionally I would go down and they would build the sitting volleyball court among their other courts and have teams rotate through to play sitting volleyball. And they've been one of the best resources since. So for, for volleyball itself, your clubs are a huge resource of not only players to play with, but people that are willing to work and support you with the, with the court space. When it comes to somebody with an impairment that is looking to play any kind of Paralympic sport, it's incredibly important to, I would say, number one is go to one of the adaptive sports festivals to try all the different sports because there's mm-hmm. so many options out there. And the sport that may be embedded in your community may not be the one that you want to play. Mm. And I think that's what's hardest for Paralympic grassroots is that you may have a disability that lines up with a sport in your community, but that doesn't mean that that's what you'll like. So I I recommend trying one of the major sports festivals like the Endeavor Games or Desert Challenge Games. There's, There's a number of them throughout the year to go to make the effort to travel to those angel city sports in LA. There's plenty Mm. of them that have a plethora of clinics to try in one weekend and Mm. it could open up so many doors that you may not know about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great message. What about any recommendations you have for coaches or practitioners, whether that's sports psychologists or sports dietitians or anyone in terms of working with para-athletes and para-sport and specifically sit volley? I think it's super important to find and research things like this or other resources that actually are specific to people with disabilities. I think Mm -hmm. that so often we get people that are really eager to learn. And I think it's important for those people to, there is ways to learn about a person with a disability like this, like this podcast, or like reading, and there's articles, there's research done out there to how to work with people with disabilities, and then dive in, you know, ask, work with that person to see what their needs are. But I think it's equally important to find these high performance environments where you could potentially learn from others. So Mm. one of the things I did early on in my training here was I offered to bring a coach with me to Oklahoma. I mm. I 
offered to pay for him to come out with using my airline miles and then asked my coach, could we put him up for a weekend so he can see and be immersed in our high-performance environment in our training site so then when mm-hmm. he came back, he could organize my practices and do different things. So I think there's always, I mean, obviously I'm very high level <laughs> in the space, so I don't expect that to be the case for or opportunity for everyone, but mm-hmm. I, Paralympics is such an open and welcoming environment that needs mm-hmm. good people. Yeah, And so there's always a place, if you're interested in learning, there's always a place for you and there, yeah. there's welcome arms for sure. <laughs> yeah. And there's ways that you connect people with other people other like-minded individuals I think you know that's one thing that comes across fairly consistently is that you know everyone that I've spoken to has has pretty much said look if you if you're interested give us a call (laughs) like just find Mm -hmm. me and you know talk to me and because I think that's you know that's the collective nature of parasport is it's very collaborative and it, it's cross-collaborative. It's not just isolated to within a sport. It's across different sports and across different levels of athlete and, and things like that. And one other thing I would say to potential people that are coming from the able-bodied side to the adaptive side, I think it's incredibly important to try the sport itself mm. because physiologically when you can actually try the sport and are seeing what the movements are and the body mechanics are, you start to really put yourself in a situation where then you can coach and understand. And I think it's, I think that's just such a valuable experience when you're coming from the able-bodied sport to the disabled side, it's very, very valuable to know how the sport works from your own body. Because some, oftentimes I think able-bodied sport coaches potentially you know, try to apply what works for standing volleyball to disabled volleyball or to sitting volleyball. And it just, it's a different, there's different angles and there's Mm. different things that you pick up on when you actually experience it yourself. So if you're able to try the sport itself, because it opens up so many other facets to the game. Mm. Excellent. Excellent ideas. Well, Katie, I really have enjoyed talking to you and, and I think you've got, you know, so much to offer and so much experience, like obviously being a four-time Paralympian and potentially with a fifth one around the <laughs> corner <laughs> or maybe even more. Why stop there? But, I, you know, your experience is, is huge and you've obviously, you know, learnt lots in, in your career. Just before you go, though, I have one last question and that's what's your favourite food? I would say pizza. Mm-hmm. And I, that's just because I could probably eat it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular toppings that you like on your pizza? My regular order would probably be some kind of sausage mushroom combo or mm-hmm. Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. I could eat that oh, all the time. Oh, so you're, you're a pineapple on pizza. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I might have to start a, um, a a poll with my podcast guests, pineapple on pizza or not, because so far the two people that I've asked specifically on that, one's gone definitely no and the other one's gone definitely yes. So. It's a polarizing question. I can appreciate <laughs> at least for sure. I'm also controversial because I don't like pepperoni, so that oh. is fair. I, I can appreciate that, but ah. yes, I will. I can get down on pizza almost every day. So, 
Fabulous. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. All the best with your, the upcoming birth of your of your daughter, and yeah, I'm sure you will you will make it look effortless whilst <laughs> there's a, a duck legs running beneath the water. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Katie had some great messages about learning how to plan and making sure that you plan consistently, thinking ahead and making sure that you're actually optimising your time so that you can maintain the level of training that you're trying to achieve. And that helps in so many ways. It helps to make sure that you have adequate recovery, you fuel yourself appropriately, and that you get all of your nutrition needs. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you want to share it with your social media, please do so. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Chris Bond, who is a wheelchair rugby player.